Hi, everybody. Welcome to Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. Busy Living Sober. And we are on episode 252 with John Maybe. How are you, John? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good. Life is good, isn't it? It is. It is. It is. If you wake up like I did today, before I get out of bed, I'm in prayer. I got a devotion. Uh, listening to an online AA meeting uh, to start my day. So when I start my day like that, then the rest of the day tends to go a lot smoother. So, and I'll get to talk to you. Yeah, it's kind of nice because I think it's imperative what we talk about, like that whole routine thing. As much as it can be boring, like Forrest Gump, you know, you're like, he does the same thing every day. <laughs> but it really is for an alcoholic and addict, it's imperative, I think, for us to find these tools that work for us each day so that we can maintain continuous sobriety. Do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely one that colored outside the lines and didn't like being told what to do. And if you told me what to do, I would halfway do it. And then as soon as you weren't looking, I would veer off and do my own thing. And so it's taken me a while to, uh, to grasp the concept of doing certain things every single day and making it a routine. And well, what's, what's funny is it works. <laughs> All those people have been selling me to do it for years. You know, once I start doing it, put it in, into practice, uh, I find it works. It does, it does work. And it, I'm the same way. I don't like for people. I'm like, if there's like, it says to go 55, I'm going 75. I'm like, yep. forget about it. I don't, but the one thing that I do in the more, like there's certain things that I have to do and they don't take that long, really. Mm -hmm. do they? No, no, not at all. No, it's like, I mean, I do meditate for like 25 minutes, which for a while, and when I first got sober was impossible, but now I can do that. But it's amazing. And tell me this. So where did you grow up? Tell us what it was like, like what you, where you grew up and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So um, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas and had a, had a great family, great supportive family, had everything provided for me, everything I, I needed and uh, most stuff I wanted, or I found a way to earn, earn the money to get what I wanted. Um, and just a, I would say just easy, easy childhood. However, I thought, well, I thought I had an easy childhood and I found out later on in trauma therapy that, uh, so I had some major traumas. We'll talk about a little bit later on some major traumas in my uh, adult life. <clears throat> when I went to this trauma therapist, she stopped me and said, you know what? Thank you for sharing those, those things with me, but I'm not really concerned about those. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no way. This has got me into treatment multiple times. This gets me anything I want. If I tell my story. People are like, oh, you've been through that. Oh, how sad. And uh, she goes like, I don't really care about that. I was like, what? What do you mean you don't care? She goes, what I care about is what happened to you as a kid. And I said, what? Like, you're crazy. Like, this is a phone consultation. I hadn't even seen her in person yet. This is just kind of like, can I get into your door? Can I, can I become a, a client of yours? And she said, uh, something happened to you as a kid. I want to know what that was. And I said, I've been in treatment multiple times. Nobody's ever asked me that. And I didn't have anything happen to this guy. I had a great childhood. She goes, I'm sure you did. What happened? And I started scratching my head and I said, you know what? I had some ear surgeries as a kid. The only thing I could think of, I had some ear surgeries as a kid. Wasn't a big deal. Happened a long time ago. And she said, no, no, no. When you come in, that's where we're starting. Because I guarantee you that's what, that's what sets you on the path for when these other traumas happen. Then you went off the rails completely. So through multiple sessions with her, I mean, I sit down and, and uh, I, I get plain white piece of paper and crayons. And she's like, I want you to start drawing what you remember from your childhood. So I started drawing these little scenes and what came out of that is one me drawing it down and then she put it up on the wall. It's called a graphic narrative. And so uh, what she did, she put it up on the wall and then I had to tell her about it. So it's like, it's in my head, it's in my heart, I'm getting it on paper. Now it's out of me and I'm telling her the story. 
and it, now it's no longer a part of me. It's like, oh, that happened, but that's not who I am. But what I, what I found in that graphic narrative was how, uh, so I had six ear surgeries as a kid. My left ear has a transplanted eardrum. I had to fly out of state to go get somebody else's eardrum put in my ear. And the doctor who came up with the prosthetic bones at that point in time in the 80s um, put in prosthetic bones in my ear. So that was um, what I found out was being wheeled away from my parents time and time again for these surgeries and having these essentially aliens on a foreign planet probing into my brain and these lights and this cold room. And I just felt you know, alone. I felt defective. I felt broken, insecure. Something's wrong with me and I'm unfixable. They can't, I can't even, they can't even fix me. They got to put other people's body parts in my body. And so nobody ever told me that. And I had all this love and support around me through the process, but internally, you know, somebody else could go through the same trauma and be, be totally fine. But I internalized it as I'm, something's wrong with me. So I started overcompensating for that. So growing up in high school, uh, middle school, high school, I played sports and had a lot of friends and get to my senior year in high school. It's, it's senior prom. I was named most outgoing, most school spirited, best personality and class clown. And so this trauma therapist goes, interesting, because what you're telling me is you were in, felt insecure, you're not good enough, you're unfixable, you're broken, but you overcompensated. And I was like, oh, that's why I've been the class clown and why I always want to color outside the lines and not feel, not be inside my own body. And so, so I had that all along. And then when these other traumas happened in college and after college, that's when, when I, and I had drugs and alcohol to, you know, readily available, that's when things just, you know got completely out of control. So I love, you know, explaining that um, a lot of times people have stuff that happened in their childhood may not have to be some major trauma, but little small little things can happen over time and build up. And to go back and um, express those and, and dissect those um, can be helpful sometimes for some people. So well, I think just even knowing that you called, like what made you call a therapist? Because a lot of people in the universe, a majority of people that I talk to for some reason, you're like, you go, go to therapy, go call someone. And they're like, oh, I don't need that. Oh, I don't want that. Oh, I'm not that bad. Oh, what are you talking about? I don't need to go see a therapist. I'm totally fine. And the last thing they're going to do is call a therapist. So what made you call a therapist? Because that- well- uh, so I started seeing a, ther a therapist after my car accident in 2000, after um, traumatic car accident that I was in. Um, I will say that just this last week, so I've been posting, so I've been posting some workouts that I've been doing. I've been posting dietary changes I've been making that have really helped out um, in my uh, round of sobriety this time. And I posted a picture of me in my therapist's office last week that I was in last week. And I'm sitting in the therapist's office. He, he walks out for a few minutes and I snap a picture. I posted on social media the other day and that's gotten like the most likes of anything that I've put up in recent years. And I said, you know what, if I'm willing to post about my workouts and about my dietary changes, those are all health oriented. Hey, that's okay for me to post about that. But you know what? Going into therapy is helps my health. It's my mental health. Why, why should I be ashamed to, you know, post about that? And so I just put it out there. I said, man, here, here I am in therapy. I've been doing it for 20 plus years on, on and off for 20 years. And it's helped me, you know, I probably wouldn't be alive without it. I definitely wouldn't be alive without it. So, well, it takes a lot of courage because, again, so many people and there's so many stigmas, right, for things out in the universe, like saying I'm an alcoholic, that's a huge stigma. Saying I'm reaching out for help is a huge stigma. So, when you were growing up, did your parents drink or did your grandparents drink? Did you have any alcoholism in your family? I had some, yes, not in my immediate home. Um, I had some uncles and uh, like uh, my grandmother's father uh, died of alcoholism. So uh, it was, it's in the blood. Yes. Um, so but, if we go to the beginning of your story, so 
you had these, so you had the ear, so you had surgeries when you were a little boy. And when you were in high school, did you drink like a normal, like, I hate that word normal. Cause to me, normal is literally wonder bread. Like that's just a plain spare when I'm like totally multigrain with many or like many different things. I have bumps and lumps and all the rest of it. So when did you start, when did you start drinking? So I was kind of a late bloomer. Most of my friends started drinking earlier on in high school and I waited till like senior year. I guess the summer before my senior year, because I would show up at parties with chocolate milk. As insecure as I was, um, there was something, I, I think growing up in church and my grandfather was a pastor, a well-known pastor. And so growing up in church, it was kind of like, well, you don't drink, you know, it's just, you're told not to do that. So I held on to that as long as I could. And so going into senior year of high school, I finally drank for the first time. And it was, you know, oh, you know, just that relief of like, why haven't I been doing this sooner? And um, life didn't become unmanageable. I was still managed uh, through life while drinking. But when I drank, it was, it was on, you know. Um, and I was able to string together, like a high school girlfriend broke up with me. And I drank for like, I remember specifically going, I've been hammered for 33 straight days. And I was like proud of that. I was telling my friends, I was like, man, you know, this is my 33rd day. I'm just getting hammered. And it and was this just. This was in high school. This was right after, right as I graduated high school. Okay, so you're 18. Oh. Yeah. You're 18 yeah. and you're telling your friends, I've been drunk for 33 days straight. And so when you first drank, was it, because I don't remember my first drink, you know what I mean? I just don't remember it. But I do remember that it was like the answer to my prayers once I had it. And I never had one. I always had 47. Do you yep, relate yep. to that? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we're at the river with my buddies, um, again, in Texas and uh it was screwdrivers. It was, uh, you know, vodka and, and orange juice. And I remember I just drank so much. I go into a stumble into the river. My buddy Brad's there with his arm around me and, and I just puke. I just throw up into the river and he's like, man, it's okay. It's okay. Just let it out. Cause water will just, the river will just wash it right down. And it was almost like a metaphor for my, like my drinking and drugging career was like, you know what? You can just take as much as you want, spew it out and everything will be fine. And so, you know, for whatever that's worth, that's, kind of sit that's just kind of a memory i have is brad was like it's okay just let it out and everything will be just fine everything will wash away and no it doesn't just wash away until you go do the internal work it takes to to, to stop those behaviors so you so 33 days and so you graduated from high school you were gonna go you went to college yeah so i went to baylor university uh communications major um joined a fraternity so you know the drinking thing was you know regular four or five days a week kind of thing Life was manageable. Uh, I made, you know, decent grades. Um, let's see. I was social chair of our fraternity by my senior year. I had uh, earned a full ride scholarship my senior year for I was doing a video work for the athletic video staff. So it filmed football games, practices, basketball, baseball games. And I got the same scholarship the, the football players got. I mean, full ride. I got, you know, $550 a month stipend, books, fees, meal plan, classes, everything paid for to watch sports. So it was a great setup, right? Oh gosh, um, awesome. I was uh, dating a cheerleader, uh, one of the Baylor cheerleaders who was our fraternity sweetheart. I mean, senior year life was perfect. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't have written a better script for me. And then on March 11, 2000, it all went to crap. It all went downhill. What happened? So I had set up a cruise for, there was 33, 34 of us, fraternity brothers and girl, girlfriends and friends. And we went from Waco, Texas to New Orleans, and we took a cruise out of New Orleans. And so I got to go on the cruise for free since I'd set it up. 
And so we come back from this booze cruise, 2000, you know, and we're driving back from New Orleans, me and three friends in a friend's car. And um, we're on I-45 outside of Houston, going back to Waco. Beautiful day out, no drinking or driving. Um, you know, weather was great. Tire blows out in a friend's car. And she just had the crew set on 70, not doing a thing wrong. The car just starts shaking violently. And we started to veer toward the median, toward the grass median. And there it is. A whole, your whole life just flashes before your eyes. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is not about to happen. It's not about to happen. And as soon as we hit the grass, we did like a 180 and then just started rolling. Just rolled across the median, across the other side of the interstate into a field. And luckily, we missed oncoming traffic. Ended up, uh, witness reports say we rolled between 6 and 12 times. So somehow my legs got out the window as we were rolling. Uh, I was conscious the whole time. I saw it happening. And we stopped. And as soon as we stopped, we're upside down. And I'm thinking, the car's going to blow up. You know, in movies, when a car rolls a bunch of times, it blows up. So I'm thinking, I got to get out, got to get out. And I did my seatbelt. And I get to the edge of the window. And I look down. And my foot was cut like the... Imagine cutting your wrist in half, just going to dangle. That's what my foot was like. My foot was cut in half, my ankle. And as I tried to stand up, my shin hits the ground and my foot was wrapped around. And I could see the bottom of my foot. That's how bad it was. And so I threw myself out of the car and just crawled away as quick as I could. And I look back and my three friends are still in the car. I'm thinking, man, if this thing blows up and I didn't do anything to help them, like I wouldn't be able to live with myself. So I said, I'm going in. If it goes down, I'm going down with them. <clears throat> so I got my girlfriend at the time was in the back seat, unconscious, undid her seatbelt. She came to crawled out. And then my buddy Spence was conscious and he was uh, tending to Ashley, who was a, who was the driver. So they ended up bringing in, you know, all the first responders, the jaws of life had to cut Ashley out of the car and they pull her out and get her into a helicopter. They land a helicopter on the side of the interstate. It was like, you know, military side you know ied on the side of the road let's bring in you know full force everything and it was just extremely chaotic and all uh, i'm sitting there for 45 minutes before i got any help they laid a blanket over my legs so witnesses and kids who had kind of walked around who had stopped to help with their parents uh, couldn't see my legs they were so mangled and so they ended up taking ashley off in the helicopter and she passed away before they got her to the hospital um and i just like to say her name her name's ashley Furman. Ashley Furman, and she was 19 years old and um, sweetheart, and, and we lost her way too soon, unfortunately. So they, I ended up going into, long story short, 14, 14 surgeries that year. Um, not all of them were, were in-depth surgeries, but I was under anesthetic 14 times that year for various things. Uh, they took one of my abdominal muscles out, and they put it into a hole that I had inside of my foot. They took skin off my hip, did a skin graft, and um, I just had constant infections from the crawling in and out of the car, picking up dirt and debris and grass and gravel from the road. And we could never really get that infection out. And so uh, after a year of a year and two weeks of trying and trying and trying, I finally opted to just amputate my leg below the knee. So, uh, so today I, here's my foot. Hmm. Sometimes I get, it, sometimes I get an itch on the bottom of it, but <laughs> oh my God. John, wow. So that opened up the door for addiction, right? So although I already had this other trauma that I've been through and this insecurity and stuff that I described earlier, but now it's magnified, you know, life was manageable, life was manageable. Yes, I was drinking, but I wasn't completely out of control. I was still able to, you know, go to work and go to school. Now, all of a sudden, now my disabilities, can, you can see it. 
And um, I don't, I, I, mean, I wear shorts all the time. I hate wearing pants. So, but there's still that insecurity and I'm broken and I'm now I'm really unfixable again. They, now they can't even put another human body part. They got to put metal on me. Now they got to put titanium and carbon fiber. And now I'm part robot. And so you got the pain, pain pills and the alcohol and boom. Um, undiagnosed PTSD for a decade as you know, started, seeing, started going to therapy right after this. And now all of a sudden I couldn't focus. And, um, so then I got Adderall, got prescribed Adderall for ADHD. I was, they were treating me for all these like kind of one-off things, but no doctor ever just, no therapist ever said, you've got PTSD, you know, because that's a whole animal in itself. So unfortunately for 10 years, I was undiagnosed with PTSD and was doing everything I could to just cover up all those feelings um, with various prescription medications and marijuana and alcohol. So. And I'm sure with like, not that, not that I wouldn't be in the same place, but I can imagine it like pity party. Like, oh my God, my life fucking sucks. This sucks. I lost this girl I was like very close to. She's gone. My friends and I, like now I don't have a leg. I'm just like, my life is just sucks. Dude, I went from Mr. Socialite on campus, social chair of the fraternity, dating the you know, cheerleader, fraternity sweetheart. Now I moved back home with my parents. And the school took my scholarship away because they had to have somebody else fill that job. They couldn't just leave the job unopened. So they had to take my scholarship and give it to somebody else. Right. And so everything that I had built up and every, this perfect world I built for myself was now all of a sudden just like completely gone. And now I'm sitting at home having my mom help me go to the bathroom and continue to go into surgeries. And I would try to go back to school. I'd get back to school for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and another surgery. I'd have to move back home. So it was just this do, 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 do. Um, but the constant that I had was pills, you know, I could have those pills and as long as I had those, I could get through. And then you're taking, of time. I'm sure you're taking painkillers and you're taking upwards and you're taking downers and you're taking this, and you're taking that. And you're like, yeah, I, I can't, yeah, I can't sleep because the Adderall, cause I'm taking, you know, a right. full, a full month's, you know, round of Adderall in two weeks and then right. I can't sleep. So, you know, then you take the sleeping pills and it was just this, now all of a sudden it, it got out of, out of, out of, out of hand. But I tried to cover it up for a long time. So I ended up graduating six weeks after my amputation. I walked the stage on a temporary prosthetic to get my diploma and um, moved to Dallas for a year, worked a job that I had lined up out of, out of Baylor. But I knew after my amputation, I was like, I want to be able to help other people. And so I moved out to San Diego to work on a master's in counseling. Uh, the problem is, is I, I just deflected all my own stuff and let me work on you. What, what, what problems do you have? And I never really saw myself as a counselor, like come in and sit on my couch and let's talk. But I felt like it was part of my personal journey to learn um, what other issues other people have gone through. Cause I, I had such a, you know, easy childhood, like I said, that uh, I didn't know, I hadn't been exposed to a whole lot of other people's issues. You know, I was kind of in this little bubble. Uh, so I got to learn about all kinds of different, uh, it, was, it was really a, a program of, uh, working with people with disabilities, getting them back to work. So I was exposed to all the, all this new stuff and it was great, but I never, I didn't work on myself. Um, and I just bounced around from one substance to the other. That was another thing that I did was I take, you know, a month's round of Adderall in two, two or three weeks. And I'd run out of that. So I'd bounce to the pain pills. I'd run out of that. I'd go to alcohol. I'd run out of that. I'd go to, you know, marijuana. And I'd just, just do the cycle. So I wouldn't be labeled a raging alcoholic or a raging pill head. And I'd gotten married. Um, after I was, the grad school program was three years. I was two years into it and dated a girl I knew at, at Baylor and we get married and she moves out. And 
so she never really saw me for an extended period of time. We always just saw we dated and were engaged in separate states for two years. And all of a sudden you have somebody move in and she starts scratching her head going, something's not right. And I think it was about six months into the marriage. She flew home to her parents in the Chicago area and was like, something's not right. You know, this, and she couldn't figure it out because she didn't know anything about addiction. She didn't know anything about alcoholism. She didn't know anything about abusing pills. She just, she, she was a, she colored within the lines of life, you know, she, she couldn't fathom the fact that like you would take more pills than you were supposed to. You know, somebody told her years later, like check his pills. Maybe I'll check his pills. She was like, why would I do that? Well, sometimes people take more than they're supposed to. Well, why would he do that? I was like, dude, I was doing that before we got married. Like where, where have you been? So uh, once I, then all of a sudden I had somebody kind of looking over me and then I had to work harder to cover it up, you know, oh, and yes. just get so exhausting for years yes. and years of just lying and covering up and sneaking outside to smoke and smoke, you know, take a hit from the bong, come back in, brush your teeth. And then your eyes are red. So I'm putting drops in. I don't, it, can she, then I'm paranoid. Can she tell that I've been you know, doing something? And yeah, dude, it's just a crappy way of life, but it went so on for it, quite a while. It, so you stayed married for how long? 14 years. She stuck by your side. So when she first started noticing this and you're of course doing all your stuff like, okay. And she's of course thinking she's crazy because she's like, something's going on, but you're saying, oh no, no, no. And she's like, yes, yes, yes. And you're like, no, you're crazy. So 10 years ago, you decided, okay, I'm going to try to get sober. And well, because she pushed you to, or what made you decide to do that? Well, so let me uh, back up just a little bit more is, um, so I finished grad school and so she saw that I was managing life. I was working for a nonprofit organization, raising money for uh, people with disabilities to get them into sports. So I was working for a nonprofit while going to graduate school. Um, and so out outside of our home and the stuff that she could immediately see, I, I put on a good front. You know, I was right. an actor my whole life and putting on this front that I was fine. And it just so happens that I get a call from my cousin. My cousin's an actor and he got cast as a, as a lead in a TV show where he was going to lose his leg, getting his leg blown off in Iraq. So long story short is they bring me up. Uh, they, it was written in the script that he was a right leg below the knee. I'm right leg below the knee. We have a similar look and build. I got hired on as his uh, body double for this for the television series and uh, on FX. And so I go up to LA do the, do the 13 episode series, it gets canceled, but I'm thinking, this is a pretty cool little niche. You know, I mean, and, and People Magazine came out and did article on us, USA Today, Access Hollywood. So here I am just getting thrown right into Hollywood and I got my SAG card immediately, which is hard to get for, for a lot of people, but I got mine really easily. And I had a nice little niche in the industry. So I drug my ex-wife now, uh, kicking, screaming up to LA and said, I'm gonna ride this thing out and see, see what we can do. So we moved to LA and get an agent. And next thing you know, yeah, I'm, but you're still, sorry to interrupt you, but you're still yeah. boozing and pilling and doing all this. And so she's really seeing the real you at home. Yes. And you're going out putting on this show and she, okay, I get it. Right. Yes. Is she, you know, and so all for years and years and years, she just kind of, you know, closes up, starts closing up emotionally, you know, and, um, yeah, unhealthy. I mean, it was just unhealthy. And so, and then next thing you know, I'm getting on. So I worked on set of NCIS, ER, JAG, Cold Case, a uh, couple of movies you wouldn't know that just like went straight to DVD. Um, and the one thing anybody's ever seen me in is uh, uh, Super Bad. I've got, I've got a scene in Super Bad with Jonah Hill where I jog past him and, and curse at him 
jog past him on my on my prosthetic leg. He's like huffing and puffing. And so um, we found ourselves at the Playboy Mansion with Adam Sandler and Emma Stone and Bruce Willis. And I've been licked in a cab by Andy Dick. He tried to make out with me and my ex-wife and um, crazy, crazy stories. But again, just uh, popping pills and, and drinking and, and smoking marijuana. Then it all came crashing down in December 2008. Uh, I got a call that my brother who lived in Beverly Hills uh, didn't show up for work one day. He struggled with addiction forever and we never got him help. You know, we come from a upper middle class family. We didn't want anybody to know that, that we were struggling. And so we kept it quiet. We're like, Matt was struggling and we didn't talk about it. And he, didn't, he was brilliant, man. He got his MBA from Georgetown, smart guy. But if you don't get help, uh, the, you know, the disease progresses and ultimately can kill you. And so I drive over to his house on this uh, particular Monday evening. Um, we had our, our one-year-old in tow, my ex-wife and, and my firstborn son were in tow. We go to his house and uh, knock on his bedroom door. It was locked. Uh, call his cell phone. Could hear his phone ringing on the other side. No answer. And so the only thing I knew to do, just kick the door in and see what's going on. And so I kicked it in his bedroom door and found him uh, face down dead from an overdose. Uh, he'd been dead for three days. <clears throat> and um, I had to call my parents, right? I had to make that phone call. And oh my gosh, mom, is dad there? Yeah, what's wrong? What's wrong? Get dad on the phone. Uh, Matt's dead. What do you mean? What do you mean, Matt says? I, I just found him. He's, he's dead from a cocaine overdose in his room. So before I walk out of his house, I just grab a bottle of vodka and just, choo, 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 you know, chug it just to try to get through the night. So needless to say, uh, it didn't stop me from doing what I was doing. We moved, uh, got out of L.A., moved here to Nashville, where I've been for the last 11 years. And I just brought me with me. Geographical change didn't work. <clears throat> And uh, struggled with uh, some jobs, struggled with keep holding down some jobs when I got here. Uh, Dave Ramsey, are you familiar with Dave Ramsey, radio, TV yeah, personality? Yeah. He uh, gets people out of debt. He has yeah. a, a book, Total Money Makeover, and does a lot of great work for people. Um, really hard to get a job there. He does, uh, when I interviewed, it was seven interviews over four and a half months because he says he hates hiring crazy people. So every time I hire a crazy person, I put in a new level of interviewing to weed out the crazy people. But again, I've been acting my whole life. And so I put on the act when I got in, you know, got in there in these interviews. And I'm sitting there calling churches on behalf of Dave Ramsey, selling his live event tickets and popping pills and drinking. You know, apparently they don't like that. Apparently they frown upon that in, in a Christian organization. <laughs> they don't want you calling churches popping pills. And so I got called into his office and he's somebody, you know, well, very well respected and by a lot of people. And I got called into his office and he said, look, I, uh, I can't help you. Um, you obviously need help and I can't help you, but what I can do is I can let you go get the help that you need. And so that's when 2011, that's when the first time I finally rose my, raised my hand and said, I, I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't do this on my own. And you went into treatment for 30 days, 45, 45. Okay. I did 45 days. The first to go around, I got, I got out, out in Arizona, come back home. I uh, joined IO and IOP. Yeah. Um, uh, you went to Sierra um, Tucson? Did you go to Sierra Tucson? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. you know, I thought if you pay more money, you get sober right. quicker and longer. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> I, I drank three days. A 45-day freaking program. I was on the trauma track even, and I get out and three days later, I'm drinking. I, I didn't, it didn't register that I can't ever drink again. It was like, okay, well, I'm sober. I've been sober 45 days, 
and I was drinking three days after treatment. Um, and so I go into IOP. It's a six week IOP program, four weeks into it. They say, Hey, why don't you bring your wife in? We want to have a talk. And I was like, all right, Hey, Sarah, they want you to come in. You know, I'm thinking, Hey, they're going to say, he's doing so well. He doesn't even have to finish this program. We, we're going to give you some money back. And they, they set us down and they go, we think John needs some more treatment. And I'm like, what? Like, she's like, what? We just spent, you know, up to thousand dollars, 45 days. She's away from, he's away from our two kids, our two little kids and left her alone. And, and they go, no, we think he needs some more treatment. So I go to a different place for another 45 days, um, come to IOP and had a little bit of sobriety after that and ended up uh, getting a really good job that helped out. I, I invented a sock that manages sweat inside prosthetics. So that was kind of, kind of a cool thing that God, if when I was so when I'm sober, God can use me for some really good things. And uh, during that period, he used me to help uh, invent something that now amputees around the world wear to help manage sweat inside their prosthetics. Um, but I got screwed by the company. Uh, I didn't get anything in writing for my idea coming to them with my idea. And so when it hit and I got the largest prosthetic distributor in the world involved, uh, they gave me a new compensation plan that was completely unrealistic. And uh, I relapsed over that and back into treatment for a third time. And what uh, year was that? I'm sorry. What year was that? 2013. Okay, so 2013, you're back at it. So you're, do you go for another 45 days? Uh, I did 30 days. Uh, I had a roommate named Beaver. Um, you know, you meet some characters in treatment for sure. And um, your wife stuck around after that one too. Yeah, you know, just she stuck around longer than, than she should have. But so I applaud her and I, I'm grateful that she tried. Um, she, had, she had hope, you know, that I would get it. And, um, I just, so during, so how long did you stay sober after the third one? Year and a half, probably year and a half or so. Um, another relapse and let's see another relapse. And I went to a treatment center in Dallas and I ended up having such a great experience there. Like really great experience. Like by day two, everybody on staff knew me by first name. Like John, we're so great. You're, we're so glad you're here. I was there over Thanksgiving, you know, and, and they just had this huge spread and they just made you feel like family. And I didn't even know where I was because I had, I had uh, taken a bunch of benzos and alcohol. And so I was just out of it. And my ex-wife thought I was going to die. She, she didn't know what I took, how much did I take, how long was I taking it? She just takes me to the hospital and she's literally thinking I'm going to die. And so she's in the cafeteria and they said, you know, Miss Mabry come to room, blah, blah, blah. And she, she's on her way walking there going, he, he's dead. You know, so that's where she was, you know, emotionally and immense, mentally and emotionally was just, he's, he's gone. And so somebody happened to be crossing down the hall that worked for this treatment center, heard that there was somebody on the hall who was struggling with addiction. And she sat down with my ex-wife and said, Hey, send him to this treatment center. So the next day I was literally on a plane to Dallas to the treatment center. No idea where I was, but I had such a great experience. Uh, I found out that they're based out of the Nashville area. Their headquarters is, and they have multiple treatment centers. So I, I uh, came out of there, walked in with a resume and said, can I, lick stamps, answer phones. Can I please be a part of this organization? And they hired me on and I was there for two and a half years and uh, ended up posting their podcasts. Um, did, I was, my title was director of public outreach. And so I would just go and share my story to local, you know, places in the community. Uh, do uh, We had a pub publicist that would help get me interviews around the country. And it was awesome. My best, best sobriety I'd had to date. I was given back. I was given back. 
I was, you know, entrenched in, in recovery. Um, the problem is, is I was using my work as my recovery and I wasn't doing the work outside of my job, right? I wasn't doing the internal work. So things started to build. Uh, at home, things weren't all that great because I was getting all this national recognition and she's at home going, wait, you, you caused all this crap to our family and our children and our finances and our marriage and you're getting all this praise. And so for, you know, for all these years, she was just bottling all this stuff up and wasn't letting it out anywhere, you know? And so I would come home from work and just, I just felt so constricted at home because I was doing all this great stuff, but it, it, it wasn't great on, you know, behind the scenes and I wasn't doing the work to minimum, you know, the balloon just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the pressure kept getting bigger and bigger. And if you don't let that pressure out, if I wasn't working with my sponsor, I wasn't doing the steps anymore, wasn't going to meetings. And uh, the company ended up selling out to a new investor and I got laid off. I, do, I didn't do anything wrong. I wasn't drinking on the job this time, <laughs> you know, but uh, I got let go and I, I couldn't take it. And so uh, relapsed again. This is like in 2018 and went to my last, last round of treatment after that. <clears throat> and uh, she filed for a divorce right after, not long after I got in treatment. And I ended up spending seven months in a sober living house, um, which was great. I mean, it was, oh my God, I'm so glad I had that, that resource to have a but place to- you, But you picked up again after that too, right? Yes, yeah. And then, so you stayed there for seven mo months? Stayed there for seven months, moved out. And so we have this phase plan and, and my parenting plan for my kids. The longer I stay sober, the more time I get with them. And so we'd, we'd gotten up to phase three where I get them for 24 hours at a time. And that was great. And, um, but then I, with COVID I'm living by myself. I wasn't working at the time, wasn't working and, um, had a, I started drinking again, um, for several weeks and I drank with my children, um, and drove and my oldest smelled it, smelled it on my breath. And I hate admitting this. I hate saying this out loud, but, uh, yeah, after all the tools I have, after everything I've been through, all the money and time we spent, I mean, thousands and thousands of hours in treatment and therapies and all, oh, everything I had, I still, I still drank. And um, I did you're it even alcoholic. with, even with consequences of, you're not, you know, your kids are going to be taken away from you again. It happens. And um, I'm grateful to say that I have had my best months of sobriety since then. And the thing that I changed, so I look back and so, so yeah, my, my oldest smelled it on my breath, called, called his mother and said, mama smell alcohol and dad's breath. He's 12 years old at the time. Uh, and that's what he was supposed to do. He did what he was supposed to do. And so she came and picked them up and I had to reset on my time with the kids, which is, which was getting them four hours, no driving for three months. So now I'm back up to, uh, six hours driving with the kids, which is great. Um, of course, I want more, but I'm grateful to even have that. You know, I need to be grateful for, even though it's not what I want. I thank God every day that I get to see my that I get to see my kids because it, it could be a lot worse. Um, but after this last relapse, I'm like, what's well, not working? And I got to be honest with you, for some reason, AA just by itself does wasn't working for me. And going back to my childhood, going back to growing up, I grew up in the church, and I got away from the church, and. I said, you know what? Let me go back. And so I, so I joined Celebrate Recovery. I know some people in AA world don't want to say anything other than AA, that AA is the only way. Hey, I use, I listen to AA meetings every single day, 
every single day. And can I tell you real quick, I want to give this resource out. If you don't know about it, um, aahomegroup.org, aahomegroup.org. I have the page pulled up on my phone and my browser within two clicks and 30 seconds, I'm connected to an AA meeting. They have one that starts at the top of every hour every single day. So 24 hours a day, there's a meeting on and I've never seen less than hundred people. So I start my day off with that. I listen to it throughout my day while I'm driving, while I'm in the shower, I've listened to AA meetings. So AA helps me. But if I, when I solely relied on that, it wasn't working. So I went to a church to join Celebrate Recovery, which is Christian 12 step. And I got to tell you, in the last four months, I've gotten off the antidepressants that I've been on for 21 years. 21 years of antidepressants are, I'm not taking them anymore. My anxiety and depression are gone. So if something's not working, don't give up. Keep trying. Try 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 new modality. If AA is not working for you, try NA. You know, if that's not working for you and you have sexual issues that you've never dealt with, try SA. I mean, just just don't give up and keep trying. And I have found that uh, supplementing AA with Celebrate Recovery uh, has been huge for me. So, well, John, I, your story is unbelievable. I mean, and. I'm a big believer with busy living sober. I don't care what it is you use to stay sober. It's just that you stay sober. And I feel like sometimes like you could teach recovery. I mean, when you, it sounds like when you walked in that door in Dallas, you were like, yeah, I got this. I know exactly how this place goes. I know what they're going to do. I know what they're going to do. And I got this and you had it. And then you went in and used the charm again to get working there. Cause it was all, that's what, you know, you've been doing this your whole life, right? Your whole life teaching yep. recovery. And I think that we have to get to that moment because there's so many people who are like, well, wait a minute, you didn't quit drinking. You, you mentioned this. You didn't quit drinking because of your kids. No, you didn't quit drinking because of your kids. You love your kids. There's no correlation. It's that phenomenon of craving, I think, that happens, right? I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to keep moving so I don't have to feel. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, using drugs and alcohol is a natural response to uh, my life circumstances. It's natural for me to want to go use drugs or alcohol to cover up. Okay. Now it's not that, you know, and so if you're struggling out there today, Hey, there, there's probably uh, a good chance. What you've done has helped keep you alive. You know, I can say that for myself, using drugs and alcohol helped at least right. suppress emotions enough where I didn't kill myself, you know, because right. I went from parties at the playboy mansion to, I didn't even mention the trailer I lived in over here and nothing against trailers, but it's just not what I grew up with. Uh, after one of the rounds of treatment, I was in a, a double wide trailer with mold everywhere. There's holes in the floor. I got kicked out. She kicked me out of the house. So you're not coming home. And next thing you know, I'm living in this silver living place. That's, you know, but not, you not what I ever expected. You know, but yes, because there's so many people. I mean, I know people just in the past couple, two months that have died that came from, you know, they all had what, I don't know if they necessarily had a white picket fence, but it was a white picket fence, you know, up echelon Americans grew up with not wanting for anything and now they're gone because they couldn't go to these demons. And you've had so many dark things that have happened in your life. I mean, so many, which would be like, screw you. I am going to take a drink. Or I am going to take a pill. And so now doing what you're doing with the Celebrate Recovery. So you do your Celebrate Recovery. You mm -hmm. do your AA meetings. You do go to the gym. Oh, so yeah. So I got away from the gym. And during those, that was part of my thing during COVID is I just, because I'm a very active person, but uh, I, I got away from working out. Uh, I do. I put on 30 pounds during, during COVID during this time, I've worked 15 of it off. So I'm halfway back to my goal, but I'm back in the gym five to six days a week. Um, changed my diet. I've got on keto diet. 
changed my sleeping habits. I was going to sleep like super late. I mean, like one, two in the morning and waking up late, just dragging ass for, you know, week upon week upon week. And so now I'm, uh, I got, got a better sleep pattern. So all these things have definitely added to um, me having this, you know, greater sense of awareness of myself and that uh, I can do this one day at a time. And um, I want to applaud myself. Let me pat myself on the back that yesterday something came up and um, something that normally could go make me drink, but I addressed it immediately. And so I'd like to share that. If that's all right. Is um, So the parenting plan states that after three months of me having the kids, what I have right now is six hours uh, on the weekend. And then I get to, and I can drive them is I thought that our uh, parenting plan said that this phase goes for three months like it did before. So I told the kids yesterday, they were over here and I said, Hey, we're only one month away from you spending the night here again, where I can get you for 24 hours. And the kids are like, awesome, dad. Great. Can't wait. And so I dropped them off. And by the time I walked in the door, 15 minutes later, I walk in my door, my ex-wife had texted and said, Hey, the kids said, you mentioned uh, a month from now, they get to start spending the night. She goes, it's actually because you had a relapse. You have to stay at that phase for six months, not three months. And I was like, I immediately went into, you know, as soon as she brings up something with divorce paperwork, I just kind of like get tense. So I said, so I just immediately went into prayer, Lord, please help me work through this. I went and I got the paperwork. I got it out. I'm, I'm nervous, but I'm doing it. And I look and I was like, you know what? I think she's right. And she was. So I texted her and said, Hey, I, look, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to skirt the system like alcoholics and addicts normally do. I said, I'm not trying to skirt the system. I, I just was misunderstood. And so I immediately called two people. I called two people on the phone to talk about it, to say, Hey, look, this bothers me. I thought I'm having the kids you know, in a month, I get them overnight. Now I got to wait another three months. And that's the kind of stuff that if I don't address immediately, and if I just push that aside, like, you know what, I'm freaking pisses me off. What it pisses me off. Uh, I'm not mad at her. I'm not mad at the sin. I'm mad at me, you know, really. And, and I was able to accept that. It was like, that's my response. It's my consequence. This is what I get for drinking with the kids. And um, so being able to talk about it with two people in real time, I was able to that, that pressure in the balloon didn't build up, you know? And so <laughs> I just woke up this morning. I was like, all right, this is it. Now, you know what? I'm grateful that I still get to get, you know, I could be pissed off and go drinking about it, or I could just not, maybe not drink over this instant, but the next one or two or three that if I don't talk about them in real time, I just push them down. Next thing you know, man, drive by that liquor store. Sounds, doesn't sound too bad stopping in there. So um, that's just where I'm at. My recovery today is, is, talking about things as soon as they come up and being in prayer as soon as they come up and it tends to work better this way. <laughs> things tend to go smoothly. Do you have a, do you have like a couple guys you talk to each and every day? Dude, that's huge. Another thing that's been really helpful for me, Greg, glad you brought that up because I didn't have that in AA for some reason, again, for some reason it just wasn't working. And if you're trying something over and over and over, and over again, it's not working. Like if you're going out and drinking every single day and it's not working for you, try something else. Maybe try a 12 step meeting, maybe try a therapist. Um, so something wasn't working. And so going into celebrate recovery, what's great is the step step program that they do is a year long commitment. So God sent me to the, to the meeting, to this particular meeting, right when they were about to start a new step study and men do men's group, women's do women. And so there's 12 men every Monday for two hours on Monday night, we sit down and we go through our steps as a group. And um, so I've been able to get close to, uh, a couple of guys in that group, you know, accountability partners. So my sponsors, now my sponsor is, is in that group. And then I have a couple of the guys that we get together for a meal once or twice a week and we communicate, you know, regularly throughout the week. And that's been so big to have some guys that I can just completely trust. And I can say anything to them 
and they can say anything to me and there's no judgment. And so a lot of people find that in AA. A lot of, a lot of people find that in, in other support groups. I just haven't found it yet. I hadn't clicked with it and it has now. And that's uh, been huge, huge benefit for me. That's your story's incredible. I'm so glad that you're back. I congratulations on your seven months. This is Thank a you. pleasure talking to you. I will uh, please keep in touch with us. And okay. I definitely have your email address in the bio when I put this up tomorrow. And um, it's, um, it's very grown up of you to, and I hate to say that in a condescending way, and I hope I didn't sound condescending, but I wanted to say like, to realize that, you know, a lot of people get pissed, like, especially when you're talking about your children and sharing that story with us yesterday and taking the responsibility is huge. And I want you to thank you so much for sharing that with us because it does, it's getting sober means that we have to grow up. And I hate growing up. I did not want to grow up. I wanted to be able to be like, see me, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this label, I'm that label, I'm in the Playboy man. I mean, and all that stuff means nothing at the end of the day, right? Mm -mm. Nope. Nope. No, it's nope. your relationship with yourself and loving yourself and knowing that some days it doesn't feel good, but I'm not going to drink over. It just doesn't feel good. Right. Yep. It doesn't feel good right now, but the feeling's going to pass. Yeah. The feelings mm. are going to pass. And we don't, th we think that, oh my gosh, this is just going to be forever. And it's not. And I love that you have a group. Will you check in with us when you have a year, please? Okay. Yeah. Please, yes. please, please, please. So that's five months down the road. So hopefully we're going to hear from you in a year. I really, really, when you have a year, which is in five months, I hope I hear from you and John, I, I send my blessings to you and your family and your wife, your, your ex-wife. Um, she's strong. Yeah. Yes. She's and I, you know, Hey, one thing that I was told early, early on, uh, or not too long ago, but I, I do it regular basis is pray for her. Yeah. You know, uh, I pray for her, for her strength to uh, deal with, deal with this, the trauma that I put onto her. So now she's got trauma, you know, from stuff I put her through and I pray for her to, to work on herself. I pray for her to be the best mom that she can and the best person that she can in her life. And um, that helps relieve pressure that uh, it helps resentment from being built up of like, she's not working on herself. She's not doing the work I'm doing. Well, I, you know, I can't control that. I can only control me. And one of the things I can control is, is uh, putting prayers out there for her. And um, so. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been so great meeting you. I really, thank you. Thank you for, um, thank you for reaching out to me and for everybody that's listening, I'm going to have information about John in the bio. Check that out. Do you want to, do you want to mention? Can I give you, can I give you my social media? So I haven't been on social media a whole lot over the last couple of years. Right. But I'm finally starting to, to come out of my shell and uh, ultimately want to get back into public speaking. Um, so I'm John Clint Mabry, um, uh, on Clint Mabry yeah. on all social media. If check yes. it out. J O H N C L I N T Mabry is M A B R Y. Um, uh, so thank you for letting me share that. Thank you. And I, I think you've got some angels up there watching over you. That's for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So until next time, everybody, thank you. thank you so much. And until next time, everybody keep getting busy living Woo! sober. Bye. Woo!